Welcome to the Donaghclody Parish Podcast. We're an Anglican Evangelical Church committed to glorifying God, preaching the gospel, and making disciples. Our current evening series is from First Kings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're beginning a new part of your word this evening. Uh, we need your help to see and uh, know more about your true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see your kingdom that is growing as people come under your authority. And we pray by your spirit, you would open our eyes to see more of the Lord Jesus Christ this evening. And to put more of our hope and trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. First of all, before I... Uh, start this sermon, can I just say how weird it is to be in this church building and how quiet it is and because the church isn't here. This is a building. The church is watching this. God's people are watching this and we are so looking forward to the day when we can fill this church building again. But I wonder this evening, have you ever been on a roller coaster or you've ever seen anybody on a roller coaster? Maybe you have not been on one yourself, but watched from a distance. Well, we'll all have to use our imaginations because we can't get up to Port Rush, and even if we could, Barry's would probably be shut. But if you go on a, on a roller coaster, it begins very slowly, doesn't it? It starts to climb slowly, but slowly, but slowly, and then all of a sudden, it drops. And you start to feel sick and your stomach goes in to your chest. Cold sweats start to come and you realize and your stomach, you realize you will drop and your stomach won't as you race downwards. Well, the book of First and Second Kings is a little bit like that. It covers 400 years from King Solomon right into the exile in Babylon. It covers 400 years of Israel and Judah's life in just 50,000 words. Sounds a lot of words, but try writing 400 years of history of the United Kingdom in 50,000 words. You, you'd, you wouldn't be able to do it. But the first quarter, the first half of First Kings moves really, really slowly. It moves up and up and up. As it focuses on King Solomon, and we climb higher and higher, even higher than the reign of King David. But we know what's coming. What goes up must come down. And boy, does it drop. And it's all going to go horribly, horribly wrong. But we're not there yet. And it seems that this, this, these books were written in the exile to explain how the people of Israel got there. They're part also of the Bible called the former prophets. That's just Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and First and Second Kings. And they're written to help us look forward to the coming of God's Messiah. And so for the next while, we're going to look at the first 11 chapters of First Kings and the story of King Solomon, the son of David. And I pray that as we look at Solomon, we'll sing King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see his reign and his kingdom. And it's not hard to see why we pick our sermon title this evening, Who Will Be King? 
because the word king and kingdom comes 70 times in just this opening chapter. Here, at this moment in the life of Israel, we're in a time of succession. There's a change in the kings, and that's worrying time in any nation. I can think back to 2016, when the old king died, uh, King Rama, uh, the ninth king, Bonapon, and then the new king came, and everybody was worried, what's it going to mean? What's the changes? But now, for Israel, who were God's people, and the king of Israel seen as God's Messiah, God's anointed one, it's even more important. Their king, God's king, as he carried on his shoulders the promises of God, it was crucial for the outworking of God's plans and promises that the succession would be under God's authority, that it would be God's king. So we need to see this moment as a moment of crisis, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the whole of salvation history. See, if this handover goes wrong, well, the whole plan of salvation will be wrecked. And we're going to look at our passage under three headings. The first heaven is David, the old, uh, decrepit, weak king. The second one, Adonijah, the wannabe king. And the third one, Solomon, the chosen king. And then just as we end, we'll look at the true king. We'll look at the true king. So first of all, David, the old, decrepit king. Opening lines of any book can be quite famous, can't they? Let me try one on you. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. These opening verses aren't that famous, but they are very, very telling. The great King David, the David who had slain his tens of thousands, why Saul had only slain his thousands, the King David who had defeated Goliath, the King David who had started to set up the city of Jerusalem, is now exhausted, bedridden. Weak, frail, unable to keep himself warm. Back then, there is no such thing as an electric blanket to keep you warm. So we're told that what the king's counselors do is they find a beautiful woman, a young girl called Abishag, and they bring her in to lie with him. And we're told, verse 4, the woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Gone are the days of David looking out and seeing Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, wash when the kings were supposed to go off to war. Back then, it wasn't a problem. He got her pregnant and killed Uriah, didn't he? But in this chapter, we're going to meet Bathsheba and the one who challenged David, the prophet Nathan, again. And we can't help being reminded that before impotence wasn't David's problem, self-control was his problem. But he's now old. And although we talk about the throne of the king, we'll see that David, in this chapter, never actually sits on it. He spends his whole time in bed. We see here, not only is he 
sexually impotent, but he's he's impotent in his leadership. He's not given a clear lead to his people, and that's why they're in certainty of who's going to be the next king. He's not given a clear lead even in his own family. He's spoiled and not disciplined at an angel. You see that in verse 6? The lack of leadership, the lack of family discipline has called the problems that are here in this chapter. And then we see he doesn't know what's going on in his own kingdom. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. The power plays that are happening outside his own bedroom. Bathsheba goes in to speak to him, she says in verse 18, But now Adonijah has become king, and you, Lord, my Lord the king, don't know about it. It's a sad and pitiful picture. And part of it's to remind us that each one of us, you and me, will get old. And there'll be a loss of what we once were. I often say that I'm 18 up here in my mind. I still remember what it's like to run up all the steps of Craig Avon Hospital, but now, not so fit. Nearly 50. Getting older, getting freer. And maybe for the original readers in exile in Babylon, maybe they would have seen something of their own situation in King David. The glory of Israel, a dim and distant past. But as we read on, we're going to see a wonderful hope to be found in the son of David. So there's the first picture, the old decrepit king. And then secondly, we're going to see Adonijah, the wannabe king. Well, with David locked up in his bed, there's a power vacuum, isn't there? And it's one that Adonijah is king to fill. And so we read verse 5. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. He's the oldest surviving son of the present king. So he's got the credentials. In verse 7, we see that he's got the support. And in verse 6, we see that he's got the looks. And he tries to make himself look even more the part in verse 5. So we've got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. It is the echoes of his older brother Absalom, doesn't it? And in case we miss the connection, it, we get a mention of it in verse 6. His father never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Absalom was also a good-looking guy. He also got support built up and brought chariots and runners. He tried to take the kingdom from his father too. And so what we need to see that everything here about the description of Adonijah shouts disaster, warning. He might be the eldest son, but actually that counted for nothing when it came to God's succession. Just think about when King David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16. Go and have a look at it. Israel's king was to be God-appointed, not self-appointed. And looks are irrelevant because God looks at the heart. And Adonijah's heart is not chasing after God. What he wants is glory for himself. And we can also see that verse 6, David shares some of the blame here. Because he never once had tried to stop. He never rebuked Adonijah by asking, why do you behave as you do? And actually, that's a theme that runs through the Bible. Great men, godly men, 
And yet as parents, they missed up. It's a challenge to me. And if you're a parent tonight, it's a challenge to you. Not so much in what they did do, but in what they didn't do. They didn't take godly discipline. They didn't use it in their home. They didn't discipline their children. They never called their children to account. Never asked, why do you behave as you do? To let their children see the sinful impulses that are in your heart and mine that need to be corrected, that need to be challenged. But actually, more than all of that, Adonijah is a warning to you and me of putting ourselves first. Because that self-glorifying attitude, that shovel of God, I'm in charge, know your rule, is not just second nature, it's first nature for you and for me. And in the Bible we're told, Romans 12 verse 3, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And so alarm bells should be ringing here. But I just cute. He's smart. Because he gathers around some key leaders, probably those who are frustrated at the power vacuum in the Davidic kingdom. Maybe those who fall out of favour with King David. But Adonijah invites them all to a feast. And his plan is to make his public his bid for the throne. And, and with their support, it's a straight road to David's throne. But actually, not all the great and the good are invited. Look at verse 10. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah or the special guard or his brother Solomon. The fact that he excluded Solomon is a clear pointer that even though King David had announced it, Adonijah knew it. He knew he was the heir apparent. And so he didn't invite him because he was a rival to the throne. Also he's excluded Nathan, the prophet of God, the God, one who had spoken God's word to King David. And so Adonijah is deliberately shutting out the word of God. And there's something about Adonijah in all of us. We want to be kings of our own lives. We want to rule. We push out God's word when it challenges us. And we'll often gather around us those that encourage that. So a decrepit king. I want to be king. And then Solomon, the chosen king. Solomon. Chosen by God, that is. And God makes it clear to David that Solomon would be his heir. David had told Bathsheba, but now that plan looks like being overthrown. And that's why Nathan acts fast in a, in a two-fold plan. He, he first of all goes to Bathsheba and tells her what she is to do. She's to go to the king and to remind him of the promise that he made to her. And then Nathan would come in just at the end of the conversation and he would back her words up. And it must have been hard for Bathsheba, verse 15, going into the throat, king's bedchamber and seeing that young woman lying with her husband. But she kneels respectfully and appeals to him as king. She says, unless you do something, I and our son will die. And then Nathan knocks on the door and enters and says, 
I'm very surprised to hear of your decision to make Adonijah king. This is the second time he's had to wake David up from his own stupidity. First with Bathsheba, now again here. And here again, David is brought out of a slumber. Just look at verse 29. It says, The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who's delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. And at last, David is acting as God's king. He is acting in a godly way. He issues the orders. He calls in the officials, verse 32. King David said, Call in Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, Take your Lord's servant with you and put Solomon, my son, on my mule and take him down to Gihon. Putting Solomon on the king's mule would be like, well, what would it be like? It'd be like you would be invited into Queen Elizabeth's chariot to drive down the royal mile. He says, there have Zedek the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint them king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. There you will walk with him and he's to sit and come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. He is to be anointed, set apart, filled with the spirit of God. And then set on the throne. And we see that everything is fulfilled in the letter. We read in verse 58. So Zedek the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, the Karaites, the Pelotites, went down and put King Solomon on King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zedek the priest took a horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! There's great rejoicing. There's a new king. There's lots of shofars and horns blown and shouting. And Adonijah and his group feasting hear about it. Jonathan arrives and is able to tell them that Solomon has been crowned king with David's endorsement and the whole city has proclaimed him as God's king. But at that point, those guests have realized they're at the wrong celebration. They make a quick exit and hope that they can get to the right party for the photographs. So that they can say they've been there. But Adonijah, you see, verse 50, runs to the tabernacle, clings to the horns of the altar of Almighty God. And up to this point, Solomon has said nothing. He has done nothing. Everything's been done to him or spoken about him. He has suffered innocently. He hasn't spoken. Great picture of King David's greater son in Isaiah 52 and 53 of how he suffered innocently. Of how before the shears he said nothing. But now that Solomon's been made king, right at the end of the chapter he speaks. And his words show wisdom, mercy, and yet justice. He rules well, it's a good start. God's king is now on the throne and he is gracious. We have thought, received then about the decrepit king, the wannabe king, the chosen king. And finally, as we close, I want us to think about the true king. Because the true king of this story is not mentioned often. The true king is God. He's the one who's placed David on his throne, fulfilling his plans. 
And I think the writer wants us to see that because the pivotal character isn't David, Adonijah or Solomon. It's Nathan, God's prophet. It's what he says and does that turns the whole course of events. And there's another few points we need to see here that when David acts, verse 20, he says, the king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who's delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. He's last on his last legs, but he says, as surely as the Lord lives. David recognizes once again, God has delivered him from another fine mess that he's got himself into. God was at work graciously working on his salvation plans. And then later at the end of verse 20, 35, David says that he has appointed Saul as king. And then Benaniah answers, Amen, verse 36. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. Ultimately, it's not David in control here, but the Lord. It's he who has established Solomon's throne. And so we hear Benaniah pray that Solomon's rule will be greater than King David in verse 37. And towards the end of verse 48, David, who at the start was this old, decrepit man, now again he's the man of God, the man of faith who gives praise to God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who's allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. The true king here is God, because his promises never fail. They succeed then, and more wonderfully, they succeed now. The son of David, who would bring all the promises of God to fulfillment, was not Solomon. We'll see that as we go through First Kings. Now in Solomon, we have a shadow, a picture of the true son of David, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have walked over these last three weeks through Holy Week and through Easter. And we're still in the season of Easter. But we hear through Holy Week, the prophets speak of that one true king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, just as Solomon had ridden King David's mule. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the coal, the foal of a donkey. And on that day, on that Palm Sunday, what did the crowds shout out to him? Well, Matthew 21 verse 9 tells us. The crowds that went ahead of him him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Here's a king quite unlike Adonijah. He didn't gather around him all the power and trapping of royalty. He didn't make a grab for the throne. And he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And now God has raised him and exalted him in a throne far greater than King David's. Jesus is God's chosen king, enthroned in glory, set at God's right hand on high. Jesus is enthroned, and I repeat that because so often we're like Adonijah. We often kid ourselves that we can just party on and try to rule our own lives. But one day, when this great king returns again, that party will be over. One day, every knee 
will buy, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Adonijah realized his guilt and ran to the only place we knew safe, to the horns of the altar of the Lord. He realized, as Solomon told him, if you sin, you will die. Amazingly, wonderfully this Easter, we're told that the King David's greater son climbed onto the altar for us, the altar of the cross, and bore our sin, died our death, that our rebellion might be forgiven. Anyone who repents of their sin and acknowledges Jesus as King can reign with Him forever. What a glorious hope we have in King Jesus. What a wonderful word to us this evening. What a challenge that if we're trying to rule our own world, we will find out we can plan and we can try to party all we want and we can try to do things at all our want, all we want. But one day we'll stand before the true king. And if we've sinned, we will die an eternal death. And this wonderful word tells us that if we turn to true God's true king in repentance and faith, we will reign with him. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to see through this book, to see the glory of Jesus' reign, his kingdom. Help us to love him more. Help us to give up our pathetic attempts to be kings ourselves, to run our own lives in our own way, and help us to say sorry to you, God, and to put our lives under your authority, under your King, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Donnacony Parish podcast. We're happy for this teaching to be shared for the advancement of gospel work and to help make disciples. For information about Donnacony Parish, please check out our website, www.donaglonyparish.co.uk or find us on social media.